Um, well, welcome. So glad uh, to see everybody. And uh, we have decided, or I've, I've decided, uh, what, what we, we ended uh, in, in about the time of Constantine. And uh, because we're going to uh, abbreviate, uh, abbreviate this, uh, this equip class and, and, uh, in our little discussion of historical theology, we basically skipped about 1,700 years. And so uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to jump ahead and we're going to talk about the development of American evangelicalism, that is us. Uh, so where that comes from, where you come from, uh, this little group, our church, uh, we're a part of this broader subculture movement called American Evangelicals, and so we're going to pick that apart and break that open a little bit and see where that comes from. Uh, before we get going, let's uh, pray together. God, I thank you so much for um, this time we can spend together, and uh, thank you for your Holy Spirit who teaches us. And I pray that even, even as we don't uh, necessarily spend time in the Word today, uh, that you would enlighten us, that you would uh, meet with us and help us to understand ourselves, uh, help us to understand the theological tributaries, the underpinnings of, of uh, who we are as a group and where we come from. Um, though a lot of us have probably attended uh, different churches and grown up in different kinds of churches, whether that be Southern Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or, or uh, non-denominational or something uh, related to those things, uh, we are here and we have a, a similar kind of idea about uh, the authority of your word uh, and what you call us to as human beings on this planet. Uh, and that comes from somewhere. And, uh, and so, Lord, let's learn about that tonight. I pray that you would uh, open our eyes to, to help us understand us and understand what you're doing uh, uh, in us, in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, when, I say, when I say American evangelical, um, just that word, evangelical, what, what comes to mind? What, a, what, what tends to be associated with that, evangelical? Okay, certain political leanings. The night after the midterm elections, uh, that, that, that gets tossed around a lot, right? What are evangelicals doing? What are evangelicals voting for? So like certain political leanings, absolutely. What else? What else gets associated with evangelical? Has everybody heard that term before? I mean, I actually, I, I, I was not really familiar with that term until I went to seminary uh, in my mid-20s. So, I, like, I, I was not, that wasn't a word that, like, as a Christian, and I worked for a college ministry, uh, it wasn't a word that I called myself, and I didn't throw that around to refer to other Christians. I just called other people Christians or not Christians. So evangelical wasn't something I used. It was something that I kind of learned people used about me or about my group. Uh, what else? What else comes to mind when you when you hear that? Okay, a high regard for the Bible. So, uh, what is it about the Bible specifically? Anyone else not named Kenneth? You what? Okay, emphasis on a personal. Right, okay, born-again experience, right? So we've got high view of Scripture, born-again experience, emphasis on a personal relationship with God, polit certain political leanings. Um, okay. Yeah, right, okay, yeah, going on mission trips, right? Like, uh, yeah, you what? 
Billy Graham, okay, yeah. Billy Graham is kind of representative of, of, of evangelicalism and our, our group. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and obviously evangelism in the name, evangelical, right? So something about the gospel, something about the centrality of the gospel to this group of people. Any else, any, any others? Right, okay, so so far we've kind of talked about beliefs, but you're emphasizing like, yeah, somebody who's actually faithfully living this out in some way uh, and maybe consistently participating in their, in their faith. Uh, maybe that looks a certain way. What do you what do you feel like practicing looks like? Right. Yeah, read the Bible, go to church. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, I, I think those are all those are all those are all good, and I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that that was all. Uh, you 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 have positive things associated with evangelicalism because if you if you watch the news, uh, that really doesn't. Uh, Evangelicals don't get associated with a lot of positive things. Um, today we'll talk about, uh, I think, you know, some of the some of the some of the baggage that comes with uh, some of the historical legacies that have been associated with evangelicalism and what has uh, influenced us as a subculture. Um, some of the things are very, very good and that we want to keep, and other things uh, maybe not so good that maybe we can be critical of, or at least self-critical in some kind of way. Maybe not to throw out completely, but to evaluate. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Now, uh, there are all kinds of ways to define evangelical. One of the most famous and the consistent that scholars often point to is written by a guy named David Bebbington, who's a British historian. And this is called the Bebbington Quadrilateral. This is what's uh, referred to. So how do you define an evangelical? So David Bebbington, uh, he writes in his book, Evangelicalism in, the Mo in Modern Britain, uh, that was written in the late 80s, and so this is what gets referred to. He writes, there are four qualities that have been the special marks of evangelical religion. Conversionism, the belief that lives need to be changed. Activism, the expression of the gospel in effort. Biblicism, a particular regard for the Bible and what may be called crucicentrism. Uh, a stress on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Together they form a quadrilateral of priorities, and that is the basis of evangelicalism. So four things, if I can elaborate on, the, on, on what he mentioned there, because he only provides a, a brief comment on each of these. Conversionism, that is obviously the, the, the idea that people need to share their faith. Evangelicals believe uh, that we, we can't just go to church and... Uh, and let people, you know, oh, you believe that? That's interesting. You know, like, well, that's just as legitimate and good as what, as what I believe. Uh, evangelicals believe that they have the truth. They have the gospel. And so they have to take the gospel to save people's souls, right? Like to, to preach the word to people uh, in a way that will see lives change. So evangelicals aren't content uh, to just uh, be going to heaven and everybody else around them goes to hell. That's just not how evangelicals prioritize the way they spend their time. Uh, activism, the expression of, uh, Bevington says, the expression of uh, the gospel in effort. Um, evangelicals historically were not bound, though they, they may be bound more recently, and I'll, I'll talk about that, but historically evangelicals weren't just bound by the idea of needing to share the gospel with people, but evangelicals were the ones who were the activists. We invented the social movement. Uh, uh, sociologists trace that, that legacy to us. Uh, our efforts on behalf of not just like sharing the gospel, but serving the poor, uh, changing society for the better uh, through activistic efforts, through, through uh, engaging society. 
Uh, third, biblicism. Uh, he says just a particular regard for the Bible. Uh, I, I don't really think that comes across uh, qu- quite as clear. Uh, when people talk about biblicism and evangelicals and biblicism, it is, uh, like Kenneth said, kind of a sola scriptura kind of way, that the Bible is our highest authority. Um, and I would even go further than that. It's not just a, our highest authority, but uh, evangelicals tend to interpret the Bible a certain way. Uh, uh, not completely literal. Uh, oftentimes on surveys, people, get, people ask questions about how do you view the Bible and do you view it as like the, the literal word of God that should be taken literally word for word? Nobody actually does that. Nobody takes the Bible literally on every single statement, right? Like that's, and that's, uh, and I don't mean that to, 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 to say like we don't have a, a high a view of scripture as we ought to, but we, we make allowance certainly for things that are figurative, uh, kinds of speech that we appeal to the literary genre and say, well, okay, that is not uh, supposed to be taken Literally, I mean, we have, we have allowance for things like Proverbs, okay? So, uh, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. But does that mean, like, if, if I train up a child to be a Christian, and they somehow turn from the faith, or they're disobedient, then God's word is not true, that God's word is, is fallible? No, that's, it's a proverb. It's saying uh, it's wisdom, like, you know, and that's the genre of Scripture. So, it, uh, so, we don't interpret everything literally as a promise or, or a claim in that way. But we have a high view of Scripture, and we look at it as our source. What do I, what do I need to know about human sexuality? What do I need to know about, um, about how we are to think about treating one another in a, in a, in a religious pluralism, in, a, in the American context? What could the Scripture teach me? So I go to the Scripture as my source, my, my source of authority. And lastly, crucicentrism, stress on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here I think Bebbington's emphasizing our, our Protestantism. Right, like uh, the fact that we stress as believers that we are saved not by our works, but we are saved by Jesus' work on the cross. And so these four things together. Now, that is actually not how we are defining even or how we get defined as evangelicals in the public sphere. So when you are when you see something on the TV, like CNN or the New York Times, or you see something pop up on Facebook that says 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in 2016, right? 81%, more than four-fifths, really? Uh, how do they define that? What does that mean when they say that 81% of evangelicals voted for this particular candidate or that kind of thing? Are they, are they using the Bevington Quadrant? No, they're, they're using other, other measures, okay? So uh, I want to unpack for a, for a moment how social scientists and pollsters talk about evangelicals and measure that. And maybe look at some problems with how they do that. Maybe that, why, why those things aren't always so accurate. Um, so there are different ways of measuring uh, evangelical. There are three ways primarily. The first way is uh, self-identified as evangelical or born again. Um, and so this is actually the way that most polls, if you ever read a poll from the New York Times or Gallup or Pew Research Center, uh, they use almost the exact same question, and they are, they are taking that from Gallup. Gallup has started doing this years and years ago before anyone else, and they have a question that they keep repeating every year. And so that question is something like, uh, would you describe yourself as a born-again or evangelical Christian? So Gallup started asking that question, and so they asked people, would you consider yourself a born-again or evangelical Christian? And that has been followed by New York Times exit polls. Would you describe yourself as born again or evangelical Christian plus white? Uh, so like that, they, so like that's when, so when they're when on the news, when you heard 
81% of the New York Times exit poll said 81% of, of white evangelicals or evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. They're looking at white people who said uh, that they would consider themselves born again or evangelical. And that is also the exact way that Pew Research Center does. So when they're talking about like trends in religion, they're looking at white people who said that they, did, they identify, they self-identify as born again or evangelical. Now, um, what might be some problems with uh, that being the measure of what an evangelical is? Well, why, why might that not be as accurate as we'd like? You what? Yes, okay, so evangelicals are not all white. Uh, it's exactly true. Okay, so, why do you, so evangelicals are not all white. And yet, for some reason, they've kind of sliced it that way. Like that, as, as it's almost a category that pollsters have invented, this white evangelical group. Like you're, you're white plus you have this kind of identity, uh, and therefore you're in this category. It's, it's not, not as descriptive. What else? What else might be a problem with that? Right. Are you an evangelical? Right. Like, what is that? You haven't defined the term yet. Right? So, and, and to say, yeah. So, if you haven't defined the term, uh, then you, you, you are just kind of going off of, well, I guess uh, I hear this term thrown around in the news. I guess I am an evangelical or I'm born again uh, or, or something like that. What else is another problem with this? Right. Oh, yeah, they certainly are missing a lot of people. I think they're, that probably they would argue that they're trying to be representative of the population, like it's a random sample of the population, or at least one hopes. And so I think they're, they would probably try to claim that it's, even though it's not nearly everybody, it's, it's kind of this representative slice or one, one, one hopes. What about the question specifically? Might, might not grasp what we're, what we're trying to grasp here. Anyone could say, yeah, right, regardless of... Yeah, okay, whether or not they actually, like, it hasn't said anything about what they believe at all. So, yeah, it's just a yes or no question. It doesn't ask, doesn't unpack, like, what they believe about the scriptures, what they believe about the gospel, uh, what they believe about, like, Bevington was talking about, like, this need to share the gospel, uh, those kind of, it's just people who I self-identify with white, uh, with, with, or, or white, uh, and identify with this weird term evangelical that I didn't even know until I was in my mid-20s because I'd never heard it before. Uh, or they're born again. So born again, that's another problematic uh, term. And here's another reason why it's problematic. So um, this is from the General Social Survey. This is uh, the gold standard for surveys in the United States. And they have been asking uh, for a long time, uh, have you had in your life a born again experience where you actually gave your life to Jesus Christ? So they even unpack what it means to be born again. But here's what we actually find. So. Uh, we are actually finding that an increasing number of Americans across religious categories, not just evangelical Protestants, but, but even look at Catholics. In 2004, 14% of Catholics said that they had been born again. And by 2016, uh, 27%. So a full quarter, over a quarter of Catholics in the United States, people who identify and they say, I am a Catholic on a survey, would call themselves born again. But would, would we consider them evangelical Christians? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, look at the unaffiliated. We see less than 10% in 2004, 17% uh, 
in, uh, in, in uh, 2016. So we've got over a sixth of unaffiliated Americans, people who are not even affiliated with a church or a religion, say that they have had a born-again experience. Uh, and that goes up for mainline Protestant. We'll talk about like mainline and evangelical and that kind of thing. Here they're measuring evangelical by their denomination that they affiliate with. But all I mean to say is that uh, this number, this percentage of Americans who claim born-again status is increasing, and it's increasing not just among people that are conservative Protestants. It's increasing among uh, different categories of people. So to say that you are born again or have had a born again experience, doesn't even that doesn't necessarily encapsulate uh, who we would think of when we think of evangelical Protestant. Okay, so going by this problematic way, like, and so you should you should have some skepticism when you read a poll from New York Times or Pew or whatever when they say evangelicals tend to believe this. What you know is that they're going to that question. Uh, and that's how they're measuring that, right? So you could ask some more questions of this. Another way we measure evangelical is with what I just showed you, affiliation with an evangelical denomination, all right? So uh, one of the most popular ways to measure this is uh, something on a sociological survey that has been going around since 2000, the year 2000. That's called the RELTRAD classification. Uh, so this is a, 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 a way of breaking down these, these, these authors, these sociologists, uh, they, they looked at all the denominations in the United States, and they basically classified them according to their traditional beliefs. And they said, this is a, uh, uh, an evangelical denomination. This is another kind of denomination. So evangelical Protestants are those like Southern Baptist, PCA, Seventh-day Adventist, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These are historically, theologically conservative denominations that they say, okay, that's an evangelical um, mainline Protestants, this is another category. These are people like PCUSA, which is a more liberal Presbyterian denomination, Methodist, Episcopalian, Anglican, uh, uh, that, that kind of group, Lutheran churches that aren't the Missouri Synod, that are a little bit more uh, liberal. You've got this category called Black Protestant, which they have kind of separated into its own, and these are historically black denominations like AME, African Methodist Episcopal, AMEZ, African Methodist Episcopal Zion, uh, Church of God in Christ, uh, so historically black denominations followed by Catholic, Jewish, other religion, this category that makes up probably 5% uh, of American religious groups and then the unaffiliated. This And that can include, unaffiliated is a problematic category as well because it can include atheists, agnostics, people who go to church and believe stuff that you and I believe but just say they don't want to be affiliated with a, a denomination. And so what, are, what would be some problems with this kind of measurement? The first kind of measurement, self-identification, has some problems. What would be a problem with this way of measuring evangelical? No, we, no, we would, we would, we would be. Uh, I think they do have a category for like non-denominational evangelical. Even though we're Southern Baptist, like we're a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, somebody who goes to this church might not even know that, and so they would. <laughs> and matter of fact, it's probably a high likelihood. So, uh, so they would probably indicate kind of evangelical, non-denominational, and that that would be in the evangelical Protestant group. But you're right. So there is variation across tradition, churches, even within the same tradition. Uh, so that could be, that doesn't necessarily uh, capture uh, what we wanted to capture. What else? What else might be a problem with that? 
Okay, well, in this case, they would just be affiliated with the denomination, but... Right, right. So Kenneth is actually pointing to uh, what is a growing trend, and this is something that you may have yourself recognized either on the college campus or, or among others. Um, within the last 30 years, this, this, uh, this category, unaffiliated, has been growing. It's the fastest growing on surveys like this. It, it represents over a fifth of the American population now, uh, the unaffiliated group. Now, that's not, that, 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 that is not atheists, and that's even, not even agnostics. The biggest percentage of that unaffiliated group are people who actually have beliefs like you and I do. They believe in God. Some of them believe in, I mean, a lot of them believe in Jesus. A lot of them even attend church uh, every once in a while. But what that means, what, what's happening, is you've got a lot of young people in particular um, because Christianity, and especially American evangelicalism, has become so synonymous with political conservatism. Uh, sociologists have started to observe that you've got a lot of young people who start to identify as, I'm nothing. Right, like because they don't want to. Here's how it was. Like in the 1980s, I could call myself a Christian, and nobody would think, "Well, you're a Republican, obviously." Like you, you, you know, like that's um, because you did. You could be a Christian and not be a Republican or somebody who's politically conservative. Nowadays, if you say that I'm a Christian or a Southern Baptist or some kind of conservative Christian, uh, it's assumed you are, uh, you know, you voted Trump. And that you are down for every policy that, that the Republican Party is, is, is going for now. And so a lot of young people are kind of like, well, I don't want to be associated with that. And so they choose unaffiliated, even though they have the exact same beliefs, right? So people who in the 1980s would have identified as Christian now identify as nothing. And so that's part of the explanation for why this unaffiliated category is exploding so much. It's filling up with religious people, but it's religious people who are fed up with this kind of like partisan affiliation. Um, so, yeah, that's, that, is, that is another problem with these classifications. Um, another problem with it, and this one that's kind of obvious, is, is it really is a circular uh, definition. Like, it's, 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 it's circular in, in that, well, are you evangelical? Like, I, I guess so. I'm a part of an evangelical denomination. Well, how do I know it's uh, an evangelical denomination? Because somebody said it was. Um, like, somebody, like, in 2000 said this, this was an evangelical denomination, and so it is. Regardless of, like, whether that denomination is changing its uh, religious beliefs, is becoming more progressive or liberal, that kind of thing. And so uh, it can be a problematic category. Though, this is the one that most sociologists use. Most sociologists don't use the first type of, of measurement. They don't use the self-identification thing. They use something like this. Now, um, both of these, both of these kind of... Uh, Born-again Christians, or born-again, like, say, let, let's say it's uh, Protestants who say they are born-again. That is about 30% uh, of, the, of the American population, uh, 30 to 40%, somewhere in between those of the American population. Um, when you're looking at uh, people by evangelical denomination, that's also in, in the mid-30s. So whether you're asking either way, you're getting about a third of the population who we'd, we'd categorize as evangelical. A third way of measuring evangelical is by specific beliefs or uh, practices. So this is Barna. Now, this is the reason I show this one is it's so hilarious because it, there's so many qualifiers to what Barna. Barna Group is like this uh, Christian polling firm. And so when you ask Barna what is an evangelical, uh, they have a category called born again. So, uh, so it's born again plus a bunch of other stuff. So born again is uh, made from somebody who has made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important. And they believe that when they die, they will go to heaven because they have confessed their sins and accepted Jesus. So to be an evangelical for Barney, you have to be born again, plus you have to believe seven other things. Uh, they have to say their faith is very important in their life today. They have to believe that they have a responsibility to share their faith with unbelievers. 
They have to believe that Satan exists. They have to believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. They have to believe that they assert that the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches, believe that salvation is by grace, not works, and describe God as all-knowing, powerful, perfect deity who rules the universe uh, today. Now, um, when Barna kind of slices the population down to that group, evangelicals end up being about 7% of the population. So pretty, as you might guess, like a pretty, pretty small number of people who would, who, would, who, would, who would check that. What might be a problem with this kind of uh, measurement? Another, other measurements just use something like somebody who believes the Bible is the literal word of God, like a Protestant who believes the Bible is the, is the literal word of God. What, what might be a, a problem with this kind of measurement, these kinds of measurements based on beliefs or practice or whatever? Oh, sure, like literal, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and honestly, like when people read those questions on surveys, I don't think they're answering them honestly at all. I think what, uh, if, if you got a question on a survey that says, what, what comes closest to your views about the Bible? Um, you would probably say, being a Bible believer, you would probably just pick the most conservative one. Like, that's how you'd go about it. You would, you would answer with your identity, not necessarily like you're, you believe the statement. You would say that, well, I, that one looks like the, the one who takes the Bible the most seriously, so that's me. Uh, rather, like, of course, you don't take the Bible literally and all that it affirms, but you probably would pick the biblical literalist uh, answer. So that's, I think most of the time people answer these kinds of things with their self-identity. Like, I'm a conservative Christian, I believe the Bible, so I answer with that one. Kind of the way people answer the church attendance question. Like, that's a notoriously horrible question that people lie about all the time on surveys. Like, uh, we, according to surveys, um, you know, uh, all, like 45% of Americans attend church weekly. Uh, and that's garbage. That's not true at all. But what's happening there is that most people on a survey read that question and they, they, they answer with their identity and they say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm committed. And so what's the, what's the most often one? Weekly. Okay, so I attend weekly, right? Like you don't want to be honest about yourself. The best way to actually ask whether or not uh, to figure out how many people attend church on any given Sunday is just to ask the, the person who's taking the survey, did you attend church this past week? Um, and as long as you're not answering, as long as you're not giving the survey right after Christmas or Easter, uh, most of the time you're going to get a pretty accurate estimate of how many people are in church on a given Sunday because it's just how many people were, were in last week. Um, so, yeah, that is, that is a problem of how, how people answer the survey. What would be another problem with this kind of slicing it so thin as, as Barna does? Yes, exactly. Okay, so what if, what if somebody says yes to all of this, but uh, they don't believe the Bible is quite as accurate in all that it teaches? Maybe they, maybe they make allowance for kind of like, well, there's maybe some fudging on historical or mathematical kinds of, kinds of things. Are they no longer even, they confirmed all of those things, right? Like, there's got to be kind of a ballpark idea, right? Like, not, not a, it's not so cut and dry on like, you know, the seven or eight or nine qualifications on that, that kind of deal. There has to be a general, and I mean, like, think about, think about all the people in our church um, that, that are baby Christians, that are new, that take the Bible seriously, that are trying to share their faith, that love Jesus. Would they know enough theology to answer all of those things uh, accurately? Well, I'd consider them evangelicals, even if they wouldn't, you know? So it's, it, 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 it becomes a challenge. So um, those are the three primary ways that people measure this really weird concept called evangelical, and all of them have problems. 
uh, all of them are challenging, and none of, none of them quite get at uh, exactly who we are as a, as a people. It's really trying to mathematically whittle down uh, a small group that is kind of a part of this weird subculture that we call evangelicalism. So where does this come from? So what I want to do, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the ideological, what I'd call tributaries. Tributaries, little streams that feed into this big river. So uh, what are the ideological tributaries that feed into what we understand as American evangelicalism? Now, before I, before I talk about this, I do want to emphasize that evangelicalism, uh, the way I, I think reliably is measured, we're talking about at least 60 million people, adults in the United States, out of 330 million. So between 60 and 100 million. Uh, and so we're talking about a lot of people, and there's a lot of diversity there. Uh, and so when I'm talking about like the influences that have gone into this broader subculture called American evangelicalism, I'm missing some inevitably, and, there, and we could talk about what might be some other uh, facets of evangelicalism that I'm not hitting or talking about, but I, I try to get the ones that I think are the most important. The first one, obviously, is the Protestant Reformation. Uh, in the Protestant Reformation, we get a couple of the commitments that we, uh, as evangelicals, value today. Uh, Biblicism, sola, the, the, the five solas. Who, can, who, who remembers those? What are the five solas of the, of the Reformation? Sola Scriptura. Sola Fide. Sola Gracia, yes. Sola Dea Gloria, to God alone. Everyone the fifth? Christ alone, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. Uh, and so what, what we are, what we are, uh, um, what we are taking from the Reformation is this emphasis uh, that Martin Luther stressed and the Reformers stressed that our authority for our religious life uh, does not come from popes, or religious leaders. It does not come from tradition. It doesn't come from extra books um, that, are, that are on top of the scriptures. Like, uh, like if I was uh, part of a Mormon tradition, uh, I, would, I would look at doctrines and covenants, not just the Book of Mormon or not just the Bible, but things like doctrines and covenants. Or, or uh, if I were Catholic, uh, I would also take into consideration various, uh, uh, obviously, things that have been spoken by the Pope, but also uh, Vatican II, uh, various statements that have been made on, on different issues, and I take those as authoritative as well. Uh, but for somebody who is an evangelical Protestant, Protestant generally, I get the value of Biblicism, right? Like that, that, that is my uh, authority, that is my source. Crucicentrism, the focus on the gospel and Christ alone being the payment for my sin, not my good works. Uh, also, two other things. So, Really, with the Protestant Reformation and the need for individuals to be converted, right? Like that—that that, uh, um, there was a the you could you could refer to this. This is Martin Luther's teaching about the priesthood of all believers. Uh, that I don't have to uh, have a priest to go before God on my behalf. I don't have to confess my sins to a priest who can absolve me of my sin. No, I go directly to God, uh, and I get from God. Uh, the teaching that I need in, in the form of his word and the power of his Holy Spirit. Uh, and so that, in coincidence with the Enlightenment, which was also stressing individualism, uh, Protestantism 
is also the Protestant Reformation really spurred on this kind of uh, individualism that we see within Protestantism that we don't see other places. Uh, and we don't see in Catholicism. One of the most famous sociological books, uh, sociological books that you would read in, like, say, an intro to sociology class, is a book called Suicide by a, a, a sociologist named Emile Durkheim. And in the book, he makes the argument, he makes the observation uh, that Protestant nations uh, in the 1800s had higher rates of suicide than Catholic nations. Uh, and he goes through this book. And he basically picks apart all the alternative explanations for why, why, would, why would Protestant nations have higher suicide rates than Catholic nations. And, uh, and what he argues uh, in that book is that, and what, he, what I feel like he demonstrates pretty convincingly, is that along with Protestantism came uh, an, an individualism, a, a disconnectedness from uh, community, from family. Uh, that, is, that is a negative. I, I mean, he points it out as a negative. It's something that we can... Uh, feel less, he uses the word integration, and oftentimes as a result of maybe not directly Protestantism, but coinciding with Protestantism, it coincides with this individualism, this lack of integration that we, uh, we are not connect, we often feel not connected to the church like we can be our own thing, and I don't think that's what Jesus implied, and yet that's kind of a consequence. Lastly, iconoclasm. So if, if you're not familiar with that word, it's basically this idea that what we don't like. Um, as, as, as Protestants, uh, we don't put a lot of stock in symbols and materiality. So uh, in the Catholic Church, what you, what you saw was uh, a real emphasis on materials. You'd have uh, gold, you know, fancy decorations and, and, uh, the, and, and an emphasis on, say, like artwork uh, and all that it represented and, 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 uh, and putting a stress on that. Really, uh, and Protestants during the Reformation were, were saying, look, it's not about... Uh, it's not about the material. It's not about gold. It's not about uh, uh, they did they they rejected transubstantiation. Like communion doesn't become the body and the blood of of Christ. It's a symbolic representation, and so we don't need to stress that kind of thing. Now, I think that probably has gone a bit too far in 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 Protestantism and evangelicalism is like minimizing materiality and minimizing the physical to almost a, the point of Gnosticism, um, and yet that's kind of a, a legacy of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, another tributary leading into American evangelicalism would be Calvinistic Puritanism. Uh, and what they've contributed is something I call pietistic idealism. So, uh, and that, that idea has been developed by other, other scholars, but pietistic idealism, in my, in my view, uh, is really this idea that, that what matters most is, is my relationship with God and, uh, and that I am with my intentions. Uh, seeking to glorify God in everything that I do. So for Puritans, it was extremely important, Calvinistic Puritans, it was extremely important to look at their own hearts, like not stressing what they do, their actions so much, but their intentions. Uh, Philip Yancey, who's an evangelical author, uh, he quotes in his book, uh, Rumors of Another World, he, he quotes this, uh, this Puritan uh, saying that, that God loveth adverbs, right? Like... Uh, God loves adverbs. Why? What does that mean? Well, adverbs uh, are, are words that describe the verb. It, it, is, it, is, uh, it is how you do things. It is, it is the heart with which you do things, right? Like that's what the Puritans stressed. It is not just that you did it, but that you did it for the right reasons. And so we get that. As evangelicals, you understand that, that it doesn't just matter that I'm praying or kneeling or sharing my faith. It's that I'm doing it with a heart to glorify God. Like we get that from the Puritans. That's a legacy, that we get. So, uh, whereas in other traditions, you can think about this, in other faith traditions, 
I could carry out my service and not care a, a, a lick about why I'm doing it, right? Like I could, I could give money to the poor. Uh, I could fast. I could uh, say my prayers that are memorized uh, and just go through the motions and like, hey, God's pleased, right? God's pleased because I did my duty. But we understand as, as evangelicals, uh, as people who believe that, that God cares about my heart, that God cares about why I'm doing things. Uh, we're pietistic idealists. We, we value the heart, sometimes to the neglect of what we actually are doing physically, and so uh, that can go too far. But this is a legacy from the Calvinistic Puritans. Um, American democratic individualism, another tributary, uh, and that has contributed populism. So uh, if you ever want to read a, a fantastic book on this, actually it's not a fantastic book, it's kind of a boring book, but it's a really interesting book in, 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 in terms of the message. So it's called The Democratization of American Christianity by a historian named Nathan Hatch. Uh, and what he's talking about is he's talking about how Christianity developed following the American Revolution up into something called the Second Great Awakening that was going on in the early 1800s. And so what he points out, um, and this is a fascinating argument, uh, that I don't know if you guys have ever, you guys have ever taken a biology class and learned the term an isomorphism. Isomorphism, it, it, it basically, an isomorphism is this, uh, from evolutionary biology, it's the idea that uh, two species, completely different species of animal, because they evolve within a similar ecological context where they're eating the same things and swimming away from the same predators and that kind of thing, they develop similar structures to where they look almost identical, even though they're completely different species. So a, a classic example would be a shark and a dolphin, right? Like because they both are in the ocean and they're eating the same things and they're swimming around, like they, they, they look like, uh, you look, look, you know, from a distance, if you didn't see a dorsal fin or if you didn't see a pectoral, like if you didn't see a fin uh, going up or side to side, you might mistake a dolphin for a shark. Well, they look exactly the, the same. So um, what, what he argues, and he doesn't use the term, but what he argues is that because uh, American evangelicalism kind of evolved within the context that uh, American democratic values and principles also evolved and American capitalism also evolved that our religion took on the flavor, it took on an American flavor following the American Revolution. So before the American Re Revolution, we're all Calvinists. Like the First Great Awakening is this Calvinistic thing, uh, and Calvinists dominate the American religious landscape. But around the time of the American Revolution, we start to change our attitudes about sovereign kings overseas uh, who, who, who like to tell us what to do and dictate everything. No, we're, we like democracy here. We like the idea to, we like the ability to choose our kings, thank you very much. Uh, and, uh, and so that started to be, and Nathan Hatch makes this argument, is when you saw Calvinism decline and Calvinistic denominations decline and Arminianism, Ar Arminianism Methodism, Baptists take off, exploded. They became very popular. And, and what he argues is that actually coincided with the explosion of kind of this, this uh, democratic revolutionary sentiment that, that, that made sense for, for people. And so they took their political values and they applied it to the, the kind of religion that they, they wanted, that they desired, the kind of they had a demand for this particular kind of religion. And so Methodism and Baptists exploded at the time. Um, what, what also increases, though, is this uh, kind of uh, what I'd call populism. Populism is a, is a term that political scientists throw around, but populism basically refers to this idea that um, we are swayed by the cultural currents of the time. Um, and uh, we as American evangelicals are certainly swayed that way. And we have been influenced 
by a revolutionary American democratic kind of way of thinking, uh, we still kind of kick against the idea that uh, of a sovereign God. We, we still, uh, deep down, don't like the idea of kings. We hate the idea. It sounds so foreign to us and weird uh, because we're Americans and we love individuals and we love democracy and we love the idea of choice. Uh, and we have been indelibly shaped by our environment in that way. Um, coinciding with that is the Second Great Awakening. As much as we as Calvinists, and I'm a, you know, a Calvinistic background and we're a Reformed Baptist church, as much as we would like to think that we are shaped primarily by the First Great Awakening, we're not really. Uh, the First Great Awakening hasn't had as much of a mark on our tradition as the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening was far more Arminian, led by guys like Charles Finney, uh, who certainly had, had negative things to say about uh, Calvinism and what wouldn't be described by that in any kind of, in any kind of way. Um, but what we saw in the Second Great Awakening, and something that influences us today as evangelicals, is the use of, of pragmatic means to convert people. And so this is where you see the rise of the anxious bench. So if you've ever been to a Baptist church that had an altar down front that you could run down front if your heart was, was feeling you know, the Lord kind of moving in it and you, you drop down in front of the anxious bench or the, the, the altar and you say a prayer and you get people to pray for you. And uh, if you've ever been in a Baptist church, old school Baptist church where they, they sing uh, six uh, rounds of just as I am until somebody's coming down. Somebody is coming down, down front. I feel it. I feel the Lord telling me that uh, we're going to sing this one more time, right? Have you ever been at that kind of church? That is, um, that is from the second great awakening, right? Like that is from uh, the, the use of, I mean, when you don't feel like God is the one regenerating people's dead hearts right there, when you feel like, no, people need to be spurred on, people need to be motivated and called to repentance and uh, motivated to, uh, to come on down, then you can engage in all kinds of like novel ways of getting people to come and make decisions for Jesus. Um, that, is in, that is the legacy of the Second Great Awakening. You see it even in, uh, even in our parachurch organizations. So the, the, the phenomenon of, say, like Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, InterVarsity, the Gospel Track, uh, being able to pass those things out. Why? To convince people that this is what you need to do. You need to come to Jesus right now, right? And I can, I can, I can engage in that kind of uh, activity to try to convince people, no, you need to become a Christian. So we are uh, children of the Second Great Awakening, uh, more so, I would argue, than the First Great Awakening. First Great Awakening maybe in the sense that we are still, like, say, Reformed Baptists, but Second Great Awakening in our methods, very much so, uh, as evangelicals. Not just us as a church, I just mean evangelicalism. Uh, we're also shaped by the 20th century reaction to modernism. So in the early 1900s, I, I said at the beginning of this, uh, evangelicals were among the first uh, social activists. Like we were the ones in the, in the mid-1800s that were, uh, we, we certainly had lots of, of believers who were owning slaves and, and, and on the wrong side of slavery, but we also had evangelicals who were abolitionists. We had evangelicals who were fighting uh, uh, for temperance uh, and against the, the, the misuse of alcohol. Uh, uh, we were fighting against pornography. We were fighting against those kinds of uh, what we thought were negative social influences. And we are, Michael Young, who is a sociologist at the University of Texas, argues and I think demonstrates convincingly that evangelicals were the ones who invented the social movement. This, this uh, a movement to, uh, of mobilizing humanity to try to influence politics, to bring about more righteous uh, and just policies. Like evangelicals were the first to do that, as we know it, or as we know of the social movement today. Uh, and yet, what happens in the early 1900s 
uh, is you, you've got a, a perceived liberalization uh, that is associated with something that people call the social gospel. Uh, formerly conservative Christians were saying, no, well, we, need to, we don't need to be preaching the gospel. We need to be about the business of, of, of redeeming the world uh, by, by making it a better place. And you had conservative Christians who broke camp and said, no, we need to focus on the primary thing, and that is preaching the gospel. And this became such an acrimonious uh, debate between these two groups, people who are about what they call the social gospel and people who are about preaching the gospel, that emerged out of that fundamentalism. Like, fundamentalism emerges in the early 1900s. The seminary that I went to, Dallas Theological Seminary, emerges after that, out of that. Westminster Theological Seminary, another conservative Presbyterian seminary, uh, emerges out of that, out of the fundamentalist movement. Uh, and so what that represented was a pendulum swing, a rejection of social engagement and social activism. So for years, up until like around the 1970s, evangelicals were, were not evangelicals, they were fundamentalists. They were people who were uh, isolated, separatists. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, but what we're going to do is we're going to believe the word, we're going to preach the gospel, and that's what we're going to focus on. It wasn't until around Francis Schaeffer in the 1960s and 70s who encouraged evangelical Christians, committed Christians to get back in the game and say we need to be impacting our world uh, for the gospel, not just in terms of like preaching the gospel, but in terms of politics, in terms of cultural engagement. And so we are children of the 20th century reaction to modernism. That produced an anti-intellectualism uh, that we are still, still wrestling with. Uh, evangelicals less likely to be college educated. Evangelicals less likely to hold a high view of education. Uh, you're more likely to see education, all oh, college is just indoctrinating. Uh, it's just, you know, liberal values, and, and they're coming after your faith, and they're trying to deconvert you, uh, and your godless sociology professors uh, trying, to, trying to shipwreck uh, your faith, right? Uh, we, we tend to uh, be, that we have that as a consequence, kind of an anti-intellectualism. A, a fantastic book that was written in the mid-90s by a historian named Mark Knoll uh, called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind uh, is a classic and I would recommend it. It's a very good book. And what he argues is, is, is uh, for this. He argues that you know, we, have, we have suffered some consequences of these even anti-intellectual impulses that came along with fundamentalism, kind of retreating from academics, retreating from science, so that we no longer engage secular scientists on their turf. Uh, and, and, of course, I've spoken about before, I, I think we should be the best scientists. I think we should be the best thinkers. We should be the best academics. Uh, that is something that we as Christians should re-engage with, and I think that is a negative uh, consequence. And apathetic to social justice. If you have ever talked to a, a Christian uh, or an evangelical who says, why bother with feeding the poor? Why bother uh, with uh, trying to change society for the good? Why don't we just share the gospel? I think that is a legacy, an unfortunate legacy of this kind of pendulum swing. Uh, lastly, and this is a more modern phenomenon, we've been influenced by neoliberal economic policy. Uh, neoliberalism is, is, a, is something that has emerged uh, as a dominant force within the West uh, following the 1950s. Um, Frederick von Hayek, who's a, an economist, a conservative neoclassical economist, uh, and has, has really, like most Americans today, most white Americans uh, in the country, would espouse a lot of the values of neoliberalism, this idea of uh, fiscal conservatism, um, financial austerity, small government. That is, that is his idea, right? Like this idea of, of 
post-Keynesian economics were like, let's roll back the welfare state. Let's, let's privatize charity. Let's give charity to the churches rather than changing social structures to try to alleviate suffering. Like, no, let's make that a privatized kind of thing. Evangelicals, because of their weddedness within the past few decades to political conservatives, have really embraced an ideology that they never embraced historically. It's something that they've kind of uh, swallowed uh, and made a part of our own religious subculture uh, in ways that uh, may not be for the best. So those are the, uh, those are the tributaries that I would say uh, are contributing to, to who we are, and you can see kind of these things poking out in terms of, of, of how we think about things subculturally. Um, I would end thinking critically what might, uh, and I'll just, uh, I'll just list some things that I think, uh, thinking critically what might be some problematic aspects of our cultural history. Um, and I've got four that come to mind that I feel, I feel like are, are just on the surface. One would be American individualism. Uh, I think it is an unhealthy thing uh, and something that is un, unchristian to think of ourselves in such isolated individualistic terms that we don't acknowledge that God redeems us as a people. Um, and as Calvinists, we can often think of, of like, God saved me, he chose me. And oftentimes in those passages, like in Ephesians uh, 1, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, he's using plurals there. Right, like he, he's, 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 he's not chose you, like you individual, like as a, as a singular. He's, he chose us in there. Now, I do think like God chose me. I do think that, and he pursued me and bought me. Uh, and yet he chose for himself a church and redeemed for himself a people. And you were a part of that. Uh, and I think American individualism is, is, is in many ways antithetical to a very gospel view of, of humanity, of our own common humanity. Um, I also think the anti-intellectualism, obviously, associated with fundamentalism, uh, is something that is, is, is uh, ghastly and, and needs to be uh, chucked and, uh, and uh, confronted. Um, apathy towards social justice, certainly. Uh, I think that is a pendulum swing that is, is really unfortunate, that, that we have somehow divorced the gospel from our responsibility to serve uh, others in a tangible way. I was talking about this uh, with Jeremy today. Like, um, I don't, have to, I don't have to feed the poor. Like when I'm feeding the poor, when I'm serving somebody in need, it's not just so that I can get the gospel to them. It's because God doesn't like starving people, period, in, for like full stop. Like, that, like I can serve poor people. I can feed the homeless. And, and if I get to share the gospel with them, that's great. I want to share the gospel with those people. But if I alleviate suffering, that in and of itself is a good thing, not as a ruse, not as like an also, like as a so that I can bait and switch that person. Uh, no, like God just wants me to alleviate suffering. Not, not just, I mean, I want, he wants me to share the gospel. But the idea that like all of that is just kind of like ethereal and doesn't matter and it's pointless and I just should be concerned about people's souls without feeding them. I think rip, rip James right out of your Bibles. Um, that's, I mean, that's what I think. Rip, rip Isaiah 58 right out of your Bibles. Uh, the whole book of Amos. Right, like just just take it out because like that is what you're functionally uh, doing. God cares about that. Jesus cares about it. We should too. And lastly, I think neoliberal political economy. Whether you agree with those kind of values politically is fine. Uh, I disagree with that. Those things being so wedded uh, to to evangelical Christianity that they are become inseparable and indistinguishable. I think we have to be con- con- you know um, my my contention is that we have to be critical. Uh, of all of those kinds of political and economic views that we don't see explicitly in Scripture. Any thoughts or questions about what I've shared? Any, any, uh, yeah, Kenneth. Um, I feel like kind of back on 
Yep. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, and I, I did. I, I mean, I tried to without referring to Scottish common sense realism. I, I think I'm trying to trying to play that, but that's a good point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. When you say conservative beliefs, do you mean like theological beliefs or political beliefs or? Okay, because I disentangle the two. Like I don't, I don't necessarily like, I, I do think like the, the academy has become more partisan uh, and demonstrably like studies, like studies show this, like the, the academy has become more left leaning. Uh, and, and with that, you have this kind of echo chamber politically. Um, I have not ever had the experience where somebody looked down on me because of my religious beliefs um, and yeah yes okay there you go right we're right yeah you know I I, I would say uh, I think those are worth pushing back on like that's worth pu- that that is worth it is worth pushing back like the assumption that uh, because you hold certain religious views that that necessarily means like the, the stereotyping the jumping to conclusions about like what you believe in other ways um, I had a professor at the University of Chicago who was, who was a Catholic, uh, and he really like a legitimate like uh, uh, Catholic, and, and he had a, we had this grad student. We were sitting in our grad class, and uh, this student from Norway who was like atheistic, uh, like hardcore atheist, and just mocking uh, of religion, and uh, um, he assumed he made the assumption that like you know because oh of course if you're religious if you have any kind of theistic views that ultimately means you're a political conservative. Uh, and my professor jumped all over him. He took him to task. He said, I experienced that as prejudice. I mean, he said, like, I, like, what you're saying, like, this is what you're doing. And so, like, I think it's perfectly within reason to, to, to point out the hypocrisy of that kind of thing uh, and to challenge them and to say, like, how, you know, like, that's not a, that's not a fair assumption. Um, so let's talk about, like, if you really want to talk about the kinds of things that I believe and where that leads me, where my religious beliefs lead me in terms of how I think people ought to be treated. Uh, and policies that I feel like would be wise and that kind of deal. So uh, I think that's fair game. I mean, I, I would appreciate a graduate student, I think certainly. Like undergraduate, you may get a little bit more, a professor may bow up on that kind of kind of thing if it's in a larger class. But in a seminar kind of class, I mean, I think that's fair game to, to, to push back on that um, if, you, you know, if you feel so inclined, if you feel like you want to defend your position. Um, but I also, I, I, I would encourage college students, like it is a left-leaning academy, and so like you want to, don't just get swallowed up by that, like you want to be, uh, think critically about the things that you're getting. Is it ideology or is it facts, you know, like, uh, and, and, I, and I try to teach my sociology of religion students, like what science can and can't do. Um, because I feel like professors, especially left-leaning professors, are tempted uh, too often to uh, make science do what it's not supposed to do and, and make, make claims that science won't take us. A great book I just, I just finished by a sociologist uh, named Christian Smith. 
Uh, it's called Atheist Overreach. It's a really short book, and it's really fascinating. But he, he basically is arguing that, like, atheism, a lot of new atheists, a lot of very, like, kind of militant atheists are arguing that you can have a robust, universalistic, uh, humanist morality without God. Uh, and he takes him to tap. Like, I feel like convincingly just shows that, like, look, you could probably be expected to be kind of, kind of good if you're an atheist, but you really don't have any kind of rational expectation for a robust morality that, like, serves people overseas sacrificially, even when nobody's watching, uh, if you don't adhere to some kind of theism. I mean, it's a really powerful argument. So, um, yeah, I just think, I think engage it, engage it on their grounds. Don't be scared of that. Yeah. I think it's so that they, because Gallup did it, did it and so that they can show continuity over time. So the thing is, if, if a question has been asked again and again and again, to, if, you, if you change it to make it a better question, all of a sudden you can't use the previous years of that question. And so like Gallup, if they were to change it, they can't use 30, 30 years that they've been asking it. Uh, and so they can't show like trends, like what are white evangelicals doing these days? You know, like they, they have to, uh, so I mean, I suppose a way they could do it is they could ask that question plus a better one. Um, but then you're, you're taking the gamble that like, people will answer it now. Like, the more questions you ask, the less likely people are to complete the survey. So I think that's probably a lot of it, is they think it's good enough, and they've been asking it for decades now, so that they're just going to keep on doing it. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yes. Right. Eighty one percent. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it was a it, yeah, right. Yes. Right, right. It's pointing to a trend, not like this kind of... Right. right. And so I, I agree that the, the reporting is what... Yeah. Like, so um, it's misleading in a couple of ways. Like, one, I don't think it's the best question, but also when it says 81% of evangelicals they really meant 81% of evangelicals who voted, right? And, and not, not 81% of all Americans who are evangelical, even by that classification. If you go by that classification, it's, it's, it's like 50% of like all evangelicals. So like 50% of all evangelicals voted and voted Trump. And that makes it sound a little bit more realistic. Like I could see that. I can't see four-fifths four of, of every evangelical in America voting for Trump, but I could see, I could see half uh, because they were registered to vote, they voted conservative, they voted their party. 
And that was really like the leading predictor of whether you voted for Trump or Hillary is just the political party you affiliate with. People just pick their tribe and their, their side. Um, not whether they bought Trump or like him or that kind of thing, right? It is unfortunate, like, again, like you said, uh, the, the reporting of that feeds into the association that this is what they're all about. Um, yes, or you had, you had, you had one? Uh, Kenneth's uh, talked. <laughs> oh, because they think white evangelical is a separate, is, is its own thing. Yeah. Yeah, so like, and I think they would probably lump that in with like what black Protestant. No, I mean, like, yeah. Oh, no, no. Like, they'll. Are they even going to reach out to Are they even Latina even? Yeah, they're, no, they're, 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 right. Oh, no, it's a really, it is. Okay, so, but, but the assumption and the, the really the problematic assumption in kind of making that category is that evangelicalism is somehow about race, too. Like, that it's like that, even though black Protestants and evangelicals on a survey like say the exact same thing about what they believe about the Bible, what they believe about sharing their faith, um, because they would assume, the pollsters assume, that no, white evangelicals are kind of their own little thing. Uh, that, that, yeah, that it's more about, it's, it's, it is as much or more about race than it is about, which like next week we'll, we're going to talk about kind of evangelicalism and race historically. So come back for that. That'll be a fun one or not a fun one. Uh, it's more of a sad one, but it'll be a good one. So, like, uh, ne next week we'll be talking about kind of this historical uh, uh, legacy of uh, evangelicalism and race. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I don't mean I don't mean they're separate. Obviously, like your your uh, your religious views should certainly inform uh, your politics. I just mean like you. Uh, I I question the practice of, of conservative Christians or, or committed Christians aligning with the political party like it like it completely overlaps with who they are, right? Like so when evangelicals say, and I'm I'm frankly uncomfortable with with even identifying a team. Like I, I want to be as a, as a Christian. I'm a like Blake preached this past week. My citizenship is in heaven. Like, that, that is my primary obligation. Uh, and so do, do, does a certain political party uh, oftentimes overlap with what I think values that would be wise and biblical? Yeah, I think that's probably the case, but not always. And I want to be able to call them on that when, when, when they don't. And so kind of being a sociologist, like, once you get into the kind of psychology of teams, uh, it, 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 it sours you on, on, on identifying with a party so concrete, like saying, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I'm this or that. Why? Because once you align yourself with a team, you start to defend that team, right or wrong. Like, you want your team to win. You want the other guys to lose. Like, I'm a Sooner, right? I hate Texas. Uh, like, why? Because I know those people? I don't, but because they're not my team, right? Like, and so if I start saying I'm a Republican, like, that's how I identify with, if I start saying that, then, like, I start to, the psychology of teams kind of kicks in, and I start to say, those dims suck. Like, those guys, like, they are, they are evil, and they are stupid, uh, and they are, they want what's worse. How could you vote for those people, right? Like, clearly you have no good reason. Uh, like, or if I'm a Democrat, and I say, like, Trump, he represents everything that is, is wrong, 
with American politics. And you, because you voted Republican, you're like him. You know, like, and, and that kind of, that's unfair. And so as a Christian, uh, I want to, I want to vote for my values, absolutely. But I want to be critical of all of these parties who claim to like represent. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's a good question. So younger people almost, I mean, younger people t traditionally vote the more progressive party, and that's been going on for a long, long time. Uh, so, but um, younger, younger evangelical Christians, um, like the issues there that are more likely to get them charged up, for some reason, like uh, abortion, regardless of age, if you're an evangelical, abortion is, is like level of support or against abortion is, is about the same, but something like same-sex marriage. That's just not something that you know, like younger evangelicals get worked up over anymore. Like they just see it as kind of a, a fact of their world now. Uh, and so as that continues to like as young people continue to grow, as that as that becomes a more just a, a part of the landscape, um, that'll be less of an issue that mobilizes people to vote a certain way, or like young Christians to vote a certain way, or to align themselves with a particular party. Um, I do think I think I think you're right. I do think you see examples of. Uh, dissatisfaction among young people that is re manifesting itself in a rejection of denominations uh, and a, a rejection of political parties and a, this dissatisfaction with anybody. Um, so uh, in some ways you could say it, I mean, it probably is doing a couple of things. It could radicalize some people. Uh, so some people are just hardcore, right? They're Bernie or they're Trump, right? Like, and, and that I think is a really scary kind of, kind of thing. Not because I think the, I think Bernie is so scary. I just think like, but the radicalizing of like demonizing the other side and the polarization that's going on, that's so obvious to everybody. And it just gets uglier and uglier. I think that is a really uh, a, a, a bad scenario. Um, Right. And so you either 
Right. So you're not informed, but you're just kind of voting your your group. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Well, let me. Uh, we're, we've run past time. Let me. Uh, let me pray for us. Come back next week. It's going to be. A, it's going to be a good conversation. Um, God, thanks so much for uh, where you brought us as a as a people. And, and uh, um, God, I would. Uh, if somebody asked, I would identify as an evangelical uh, because of the things that I believe that that uh, category in my mind uh, stands for. Somebody who, who uh, tries to live their life. Um, by the truth of your word, somebody who believes uh, that Jesus is the only payment for sin, uh, that I am called uh, to change my world for the better, and that I'm called to change my world with the gospel. And so, God, I pray that we would uh, embrace all the things that we love about that, that message, uh, while at the same time being critical of the, the, some of the ideological tributaries that have contributed to, to, to who we are and the things that, that our group often values that we would push back against a cultural narrative that says uh, evangelicals are like this. Um, and we would call people on that stereotype and say, like, you know what, I, I, I'm more complex than that. Uh, I, have, I have different views and I have a different background and I may be critical of, of, of those kinds of things. And so, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be wise in the way that we act towards outsiders. I, think that, I hope that we would be salt and light uh, to this world as Christians, as Christ followers. Um, and, uh, and God, that we would make an impact in our community uh, for you. Uh, thank you for our history and our heritage, and I pray that you would help us to uh, continue to uh, run, with that, uh, run with that torch. In Jesus' name, amen.